Welcome to the City Road Podcast. Join us on City Road as we travel along the frontiers of urban and housing research. Follow us on Apple Podcast and find out more about the show at cityroadpod.org. In 2014, an African-American teenager named Michael Brown was shot by police in Ferguson, Missouri. His death led to widespread protests across the United States and the rise of the movement known as Black Lives Matter. Many of us were watching these events unfold on television, and we probably made assumptions about Ferguson being one of those typically poor, black US neighborhoods, riddled with violence, crime and drugs. But according to Associate Professor Sarah Coffin, nothing could be further from the truth. In this episode of City Road Podcast, we take a look at what was happening in Ferguson before Michael Brown's death, and how urban planning helped create the conditions which led to the unrest. So Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, We are going to talk about urban planning and discrimination today, but I guess a good starting point for this discussion is to talk about Ferguson, Missouri, and the scene of the shooting of Michael Brown in 2014. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? And I believe the Black Lives Matter movement comes from this. Yeah, let me first start by saying that I'm not an expert in that part of this. And um, certainly there are many other very important activists in the African-American community and the black community that could speak much more specifically, deeply, and eloquently about this. But being a resident of the region, not of Ferguson specifically, but of the city of St. Louis, which is 15 kilometers to the west of where I live, um, very familiar with what happened, obviously. Um, Ferguson is a... Is a northeastern suburb it's a middle-class suburb predominantly black but they have these concentrated pockets of poverty which co-locate with race and the area where michael brown was killed was one of those concentrated pockets and ferguson itself has a history that uh, a racist history as most of the communities in st louis do in missouri being, being a former slave state during the civil war so there's this there was a simmering tension And it's not like unarmed black men have never been shot by police officers before for no reason. That was something that, you know, is typical, common, not typical, but it's not unusual. But I think it was the response. So Michael Brown was killed, profiled, shot in the street, in the back. There's some debate over what happened. But the point was, after he was killed, he laid in the street, uncovered. His body lay there for four hours. And so it was. This, it, it demonstrated the, this this complete lack of lack of respect for both Michael Brown and that neighborhood, Michael Brown, his family, in the neighborhood. And so that was what led to the eruption. And what's what's important to know about Ferguson and the protests that followed is in St. Louis, we work really hard to keep our racial dirty laundry quiet and more so than a lot of places in the United States. And so the fact that this just blasted out onto the front pages across the world, I think, is what really sent everybody reeling. 
And then follow the, followed that up with the fact that they decided not to indict the officer involved. Mm-hmm. And so what, what followed on there was this high-profile look at what happened, what is happening in that community. Mm-hmm. And so things like um, debtor, what, where the equivalent of a debtor's prison was, was really building up poor people, mainly black people who would get pulled over for a broken taillight. They would get a ticket. They didn't have the money to pay for that taillight. So then that led to another ticket. And so then next thing you know, they don't pay their tickets. They, they get a court summons. They don't have the ability to show up for court because they can't miss their job because they'll lose their job. And then all of a sudden they're arrested mm. because they're found in contempt of court yeah. and they end up in jail. And then they can't afford to pay the bail, so they stay there. That yeah. was the problem. And in and in many ways, the the structural discrimination and structural racism you're talking about here might not seem to be connected to urban or regional planning, but it but it is, isn't it? There's a long history of this. Long history of it, and I think when you look back at uh, at the black experience in the United States and their inability to acquire wealth. And through zoning practices... Through tell, st- tell us a little bit about those sure. planning practices. So this was a st- strategic. So following the war, civil war I'm referring to, believe it or not, as African-Americans, black Americans were starting to find their way as freed people and as the white population started not being comfortable with the fact that former slaves were all of a, all of a sudden had their freedom for the next decades that we still don't see much progress in, in the black experience. And there's quite a bit of, of racism that the, the, you're familiar with the Jim Crow laws that essentially created this whole separate but equal structure. And to the point where we had racial covenants in place in Saint, places like St. Louis that essentially identified neighborhoods where black people were supposed to live and in neighborhoods where they were not allowed to live. Mm-hmm. Then you fast forward to um, 1948 was a, was a, a, a an important year, uh, Supreme Court's case Shelley versus Kramer, where a family, a black family, wanted to purchase a house from a white family, a friend of the family, and the white family sold the home to the black family, and all of the white neighbors banded together and tried to prevent the sale from going through, and this case made it all the way up to the Supreme Court and at that point finally the Supreme Court found that this was the racial covenants were not legal based yeah. on race in housing practices so housing discrimination there was a foundation for eliminating it but then you keep going and where people where black people were allowed to purchase was not the, in the most economically opportunistic areas mm. so that spatial inequality just started getting bigger and bigger and you started seeing more and more concentrations mm. in pockets of poverty yep. so we have a long history of structural discrimination that goes across by the sounds of it urban planning i know that there mm-hmm. was mortgage restrictions and mortgage yes mechanisms that excluded uh, black people from particular areas. So how does that history kind of create the context for what's happening in the U.S. and Ferguson today? So following the the Shelley finding, banks, the next way in which they discriminated against black families and black people was through what, a practice called redlining. And so what banks would do is take a red marker, literally, and draw a circle around a particular neighborhood on a map 
and that neighborhood had very common characteristics, black and poor. And they identified these neighborhoods as high-risk neighborhoods, and they would not lend in those neighborhoods. Yet they had branches where they would cash checks, and they would accept deposits, but they would not lend. So they weren't investing in those neighborhoods. Mm. It would make sense that if you were going to redline somewhere like that, you would make the loans more available and at lower interest rates. I think that would make sense to me to address poverty. Exactly. But that's the question. Were they addressing poverty? What was their goal? Hmm. And so you had a lot of these practice, these racial practices that are baked into the policy. And so that's, that's that structural inequality that, that keeps black families and black people permanently as the underclass. Hmm. And so they, it limits their ability to bring themselves out of poverty. So it's just generations and generations Mm. that are left out of access to opportunity. What about your contemporary research? What does that look at in terms of these types of structural factors? So what we see structurally today is um, where investment happens. So like, for example, uh, tax increment financing, it's a a form of value capture. It's a common tool in the United States that we use in communities, TIF, you may be familiar with TIF. And so, and this is a very local, pra- localized practice. It's not something that happens at a state level or a federal level, although it's enabled at the state level, but local communities determine where these TIF projects are invested, where they take taxpayer money, they, they, they essentially create a district and agree that development in this district is gonna be paid for by a value capture of increased taxes. And these taxes can be property taxes, they can be payroll taxes, Mm -hmm. and in the state of Missouri, they can also be other kinds of economic activity taxes that include sales tax. So that's the, the idea of value capture here is that if you, for instance, rezone a plot of land, and that land might have a transport node built on it, Uh, that land value will go up. And because the urban planning mechanism created the value, the state will capture some of that value and redistribute it to some other public good. And what you're saying is that redirection goes to very specific places in the city. Correct. So that value capture gets, it's a very targeted investment. And typically it's where you already see a market happening. And so investment brings more investment And you see very concentrated pockets of this in parts of the Central Corridor in St. Louis, for example. And so areas that are not just depressed anymore, which is what you would typically, where you typically see investment, they're trying to just continue on this this upward cycle of investment. Hmm. And where do you see that going? Well, it's interesting. So ever since uh, the, the Ferguson protests after Michael Brown was killed, there's been more attention paid to the more equity side of development. And so how de- equitable are these development decisions, say, w- for example, with, with TIF investment? So historically, we've just, you know, it all, it, it, money chases money. And so the wealthy get wealthier. But following, ever since the Ferguson protests, there has been a, an emerging voice among uh, progressives that is really taking a look at progressive development tools and progressive development practices, more equitable development practices. The group in particular I'm referring to is Team TIFF. Mm. Um, they've kind of jumped in here and really taken a look at the data and it's a very data-driven process that mm. they're trying to shine a light. And it's not that they're anti-development, 
They just want to see more equity in that development because, mm. after all, the money that's being used, being invested in these communities, is public money. Mm. And so, therefore, you would want to see more of a public benefit that, say, is is addressing spatial inequality, be, racial inequality, economic inequality. Mm. And your work's really at the center of this, isn't it? With you doing some digital work yes. where you're trying to make data freely available yes. to yes. these types of groups. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure, certainly. So, uh, a project that I've been involved in for about five years now. It's called the St. Louis Regional Data Exchange, and we have a website, stlewisdata.org. There's the plug. There's the plug. <laughs> so um, it's, a, it's a site. Initially, it was funded by a larger um, federal grant that was looking at planning for sustainable communities, and so we've really expanded it out to really focus on this idea of democratization of data. And the idea being that more data that's more freely available allows for more people to be involved and have a voice in the decision-making process, and it's a data-informed voice. So, And data-informed decision-making is more democratic decision-making. Mm. And what, how does race play into this? Is there a politics of data that can be broken down on racial lines? Do some groups have more access to data or, than others? Well, it's hard to say that there is a, a, a racial component to the data. Mm. I think it's more of a power component. Mm. So municipalities who don't want a lot of light shown on their practices tend to not want the data to be as freely available. And, but that's where you maybe you might see a little bit more uh, inequality in the data, in the decision making process or inequity mm. in the decision making process around development decisions. So I'd say it's more of, of a the politics are around power, which of course have racial and and economic implications mm. to them. But I think it's more the the politicians. The, the politics of the data. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you've been traveling around Australia while you've been staying here, and we're actually very close to a big public housing estate redevelopment that's going on just over here that's got some racial mm-hmm. elements to it. What do you think of the Australian context in terms of how we're managing urban planning and the racial question? Well, I think what what I find really interesting and exciting is, is how planning forward Australia is versus the United States. And where, you know, and, and in some respects, some people claim that it might get in the way of development. But, you know, when I look at the price of, of housing in this, in this region and the price of economic development in this region, I don't see how it's getting in the way of development. Um, if anything, I think planning is going to be an important, even more important component here in Australia to try to help, especially in, Sid- in the Sydney metro, to try to keep housing more readily available to more people. So planning tools are what help keep things more equitable here. Mm-hmm. And I feel like in Australia, there there is more of a culture of that. But the housing shortage question, the housing access question is a very serious one here that mm-hmm. I'm not ready to, to, to make any judgments right, right. on yet, but I, I notice it. Is there anything we could learn from the U.S.? Or you've pitched us as the front runner there. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I think what Australia can learn from the United States is uh, their cautionary tales. You know, you can take a look at the United States and see, see what happens when we don't plan. Mm. 
Um, when we don't take into consideration equity, when we don't try to think about housing shortages from an equitable point of, from an equity point of view, mm. um, it's just a matter of, okay, let's just make sure more there's more money available for developers. It's more, okay, what kind of housing should there be? Mm. I mean, we're, we tend to let the developer take the lead in the United States and planning is, is running to catch up. Now that's not, I don't wanna generalize I mean, in the United States, we're a nation of very, very unique, specific areas. I mean, you, you've got very progressive pockets on the coasts, obviously, and in Chicago, um, in the central part of the country. But you get into the more rural parts of the United States, and planning is not really seen as it, it's seen as a necessity in order to be able to pull to attract federal investment. Mm. You know, if you want federal money, you have to have a plan in place, but that's pretty much it. Right. I guess one of the challenges for a planning system, which is very much in the here and now, is how it might deal with or address some of the long-term structural historical challenges. So that's one of the things that we've been trying to deal with in Australia. You know, how do we repatriate land to Indigenous people? Well, in Australia, we largely do it where the land doesn't have a great deal of value in the middle of the country. Very rarely do we give it back in the cities. So I wonder how we might use the planning system or can we use the planning system to address some of those structural historical challenges? Wow, that's the big question. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're struggling with the same thing in the United States. We did the same thing to our indigenous people. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're, they were and are continue to be given the least productive land. Mm. Which, Until, of course, someone finds um, oil underneath it. Or natural gas. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right, exactly. And then we have to figure out a way to dig underneath that. Mm. So we have talked a little bit about the structures that created these places that perpetuated disadvantage and that in many ways lock people in. But people also feel a good sense of community in these places as well, probably a sense of community that they don't want to lose. So how do we deal with the structural discrimination and the place discrimination without necessarily breaking up these communities. Well, yeah, that's a very important point. So, for you know, we had the, these large swaths of parts of the city in St. Louis, for example, that were redlined, and so became very concentrated in their poverty and concentrated in, in their race. And now, all of a sudden, as we see more of the central quarter investment expanding out those areas all of a sudden because yes they were they were they were excluded but a sense a, a certain sense of community really uh, took hold in those neighborhoods and historically a lot of the black neighborhoods in St. Louis uh, as with in many of these the the black neighborhoods around the country in the United States they are they are the the there are these 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 rich places of culture that emerged and in St. Louis, you know, we're, we've got a very rich culture around the blues music, um, but also around, you know, due to discriminatory, discriminatory employment practices, there was a concentration of knowledge. So black PhDs could not get a job at a white school, at a white college. And so they, they concentrated in these neighborhoods. And so these families had these great sense of of community and and enrichment desegregation allowed all of that to dissipate mm. but there's still this nice little piece of community that all of a sudden you start seeing a gentrification where white people want to come in they like this neighborhood and how do you keep 
displacement from happening. So gentrification without some sort of planning control leads to displacement, which was leads to a lot of additionally more frustration. You see this in New York City, mm. in the Bron in Brooklyn right now. Brooklyn all of a sudden is this very trendy place to live. Uh, Harlem, East Harlem is is are these these wonderful rich areas that are being rapidly gentrifying, and. There's a lot of tension now associated with that. The hipster is is all of a sudden a very derogatory term. Yeah. And but the hipster doesn't care. Because yeah. they're white. <laughs> it reminds me of research I've done here in Australia with public housing tenants who say to me they liked it when people were scared to come onto their estate. Yep. And actually when people started to come on, they started to get worried because that was the only space that they felt comfortable and they felt they could protect and they had a sense of community in here. And so that is the gentrification warning bell for them when, when other people start to come in. Precisely. That yeah. is exactly that. That That's the story. In, in St. Louis, we have a famous public housing project that was an experiment. Pruitt-Igo, um, if you're familiar, if you like art films and you've seen Keone Scotsy and this, this implosion of these massive series of buildings with a Philip Glass soundtrack behind it. That's Pruitt-Igo. Pruitt-Igo was this massive housing project that was open to great fanfare in, in the mid-50s and was demolished by 1976. But you talk, and, and, and it was developed, demolished for many different reasons. A lot of it was structural, baked in racism that the federal government didn't want to pay for the maintenance of, that, of the place. But you talk to some of the residents of Pruitt-Igo and they and they have this this real sense of community, even though maybe their son was murdered there or yeah. their daughter was raped or something horrible happened to them. But they had this community that they didn't find elsewhere. Mm. That when they left, they lost it. Mm. And so gentrification, when on on the flip side, you have gentrification coming in, doesn't respect that a lot of times, or tries to co-opt it, especially if it's white gentrification, trying to co-opt what was there. And so planning can address that, but planning can also, ex planning can accelerate the gentrification, right? But planning can all, planning tools can be used to try to help with this, help prevent the displacement. So mm. inclusionary zoning practices, extremely important tool where if a developer wants incentive to do X, Y, Z, you say, all right, but these are the criteria you need to meet. We need to have, say, 20% of the housing you want to build or rehab needs to be set aside as affordable to 80% of the of the area median income so that you can, or even upwards to 120% of the area median income so you can have a wide range of housing options mm. for people who can stay in, in place. And there's a lot of other very localized tools that you can use, you know, for, for elderly residents who want to stay put, you can create a, a rehab program that they can get low to no cost loans to do any kind of revitalization, remodel remodeling that they may need to stay in place. Excellent, thanks Sarah for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome, it's my pleasure. So that's it for this week, but remember, we'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a review via our iTunes podcast site. Just hit the subscribe link on our website at cityroadpod.org.